Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. We're on the radio. I had no idea we were on the air so soon. And I'm talking to Eric Tannenblatt, asking him about the tablet that he is um, using. It's very sophisticated. That is Eric Tannenblatt. He's uh, a Republican insider who has uh, worked with presidential candidates with presidents of the United States on the Republican side. Everybody from George H.W. Bush to George W. Bush uh, was out there on behalf of Mitt Romney uh, for a good deal of time during his presidential bid. And you started your career really working on local political campaigns. Uh, uh, Paul Coverdale. Uh, All right. He was my political mentor at a young age. Exactly, which is when we got to know each other way back in the dark ages. Next to you is Mary Margaret Oliver, state representative from Decatur. We're glad to have you with us today, uh, Mary Margaret. we got some conversation coming up here about the show we did with the speaker in which he talked about some things he wants to do with the legislature, like maybe be open to looking at gambling. Um, I'm sure you'll have something to say about that. There's rumors about. Yeah, all right. And Jim Galloway uh, is with us. He, of course, is the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us on Mondays and Fridays, and you read him in the Wednesday and Sunday newspaper. And, Jim, we're going to talk to you in a little while about the column that you had in yesterday's paper, which talked about some interesting aspects of health care as, dis- as shown by what happened in the Kentucky governor's race and with what Brian Kemp just dropped in terms of his waivers on oh, Medicaid. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, before we get to any of that, a quick notice. Um, because so much is happening right now politically, both here in the state, around the country because there are many Georgians who are active and involved in the impeachment process or one side or the other. We're going to do a special edition of Political Rewind this Thursday. We'll be on at our usual time, 2 o'clock. And um, I know many of you have felt we should be on the air on Thursdays anyway. Well, this week we will be. So uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you then. I also need to add that Kyle Hayes is with us from the NPR studios in Washington. Uh, Kyle, you um, uh, oversee and founded Peach Pod, which, despite the fact you're based in Washington, is a podcast that deals with Georgia politics. What's your most recent podcast, Kyle? Well, we are doing a little bit uh, something a little bit different this week. We're going to put out several smaller shows instead of our usual hour, hour and 10 minute show. So today we recapped the elections, the off year elections in Kentucky and Virginia last week and what lessons those hold for Georgia in 2020. Oh, good. Well, we'll be interested in hearing what you have to say about that uh, during this conversation as well. All right. So let's get first of all, uh, let's start by pointing out the fact this is Uh, Veterans Day, as uh, many of you know. And um, I just want to take a minute to talk first about what that day means and and then uh, get into some of the issues surrounding veterans care, which is still such a problem here in this country. Veteran, I, Jim Galloway, you're, you know history about stuff like this. This started out as Armistice Day, and it was first uh, celebrated in 1919 when President Wilson proclaimed uh, November 11th as the first commemoration of Armistice Day. It right. was November 11th was the day in which World War One, the war to end all wars, essentially came to an end. The armistice wasn't signed until the following year, but but we come we've come to acknowledge November 11th as the day in which the war really ended. Yeah, and it was it was and that was of course the first uh, war where uh, the United States really entered the world stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it was Armistice Day for a very long time because it was honoring World War One, and then after World War Two, President Eisenhower was encouraged to broaden the uh, term, and that's when it became Veterans Day in 1954. President Eisenhower signed a proclamation. He said this essentially. Well, this is what the part of the proclamation says. Whereas the people of this nation are grateful to the veterans of our armed forces who have faithfully discharged the duties of citizenship and nobly served in times of national peril. 
And whereas among the resources from which our country draws her strength, we hold in high esteem the more than 22 million living veterans of our military, naval, and air services, and we treasure the freedom preserved for us by the sacrifice of many. And he goes on to say, in witness thereof, I have hereby set my hand and caused the seal of the United States of America to be affixed, uh, establishing November 11th as uh, Veterans Day. Uh, it's a powerful day, Eric Tannenblatt. Absolutely, and inappropriate. And, and I think President Eisenhower expanding it uh, is appropriate. And we honor veterans beyond just World War One and World War Two, and uh, some of the more recent. Uh, oh, clearly. Yeah. 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 In fact, what was interesting to me is when I read that proclamation, he was talking about 22 million veterans in 1954. Now, we obviously know we lose veterans every year from earlier wars, but I, I haven't looked recently, but I would imagine that number has grown pretty dramatically since then. We've been in continuous wars yeah. uh, for many, many years. In this day of social media, what I've been intrigued by and moved by is all the family pictures. Uh, I put up a family picture in my my Facebook post. These young, very young, mostly men, but women too, very young families. Uh, it's very moving to reflect on the sacrifices that those young men and women made. Uh, my father was the greatest generation, the World mm -hmm. War II generation, left his family uh, and went off. Where did he serve? He was in the Navy. He was, out of, he was not in combat. He was on a supply ship in a medical unit because he was a pharmacist. And Jim Galloway, as long as we're talking about that, you every year post a column that tells the story of your father's uh, journey as a soldier. And one of the things that's so amazing is you tell us your dad was 17 years old. Yeah, he served four years, no, maybe 180 days, and was discharged before he was 22, and by the by war's end. Wow! He, and he had traveled. Um, and by then, he had traveled. He tra traveled to North Africa, India, China. Uh, and and you you forget. I mean, you you, you kind of forget the the massive uh, response in the United States that 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 entire high schools were emptied of young men uh, during during that period. And, and and we find that so hard to grasp now. I, I think uh, I think I, I read where, where Johnny Isaacson was 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 uh, uh, citing the fact that you know r right now our, our country is defended by one percent, one percent of the population. Um, your dad enlisted six months before Pearl mm -hmm. Harbor, and he chose the army. He wasn't drafted. No, no, because if you enlisted early, you could choose you the could, service. You could cho choose your service, and he wanted to. He wanted to become a pilot. Yeah. Uh, that he, he got as far as becoming a mechanic, an aircraft mechanic. Oh, um, my father served on. He was Navy. He was a, an officer on a refrigerated cargo ship in the South Pacific, and um, you know, far, far from home in the South Pacific. He, he had been. He was um, going to marry my mother and went off to serve on his ship, and she moved to San Francisco, which was his point of disembarkation, and uh, waited for him uh, through the war out there. Eric? My f father did not serve. My yeah. grandfather served. Yeah. My father-in-law served uh, in the Navy. Uh, and so uh, it uh, runs deep in our family as well. Yeah. All right, so all of that, by the way, uh, it's also worth pointing out that as of the end of 2017, which are the most recent figures I could find, there are some 88,000 Georgians serving in the United States military in one branch of the service, either Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, or Coast Guard. So we salute all of them uh, on, on this day. All right, uh, Jim, given that we celebrate our, our veterans today, we also have to look at the reality of what uh, many of them are contending with. Here in Atlanta, we're really at ground zero for some of the crises that have afflicted the VA hospital. It's been a real, it's been a tremendously difficult time for, for veterans who want to get service at the VA hospital here. Right, right. Uh, we've got one of the largest VA hospitals in the country, and it's also one of the worst rated. Uh, and uh, I think the, I think they're currently barred from they've suspended all surgeries uh, even even now uh, while they try to get their 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 act together again. This is this is 
you see, you hear a lot of talk on Veterans Day, but this is what's disturbing here, is that uh, we're, we're, the South is in something called Network Seven. It's one of the administrative units for the VA, and it is typically, again, the worst rated sector in the nation, and it probably produces. Uh, uh, more personnel for for U.S. military than any other spot in the country. Our state veterans office says that there are over 700,000 Georgians that have a military career. Uh, The VA hospital on Claremont Road is in my district, and my law practice is involved serving as conservator, managing money for a number of veterans for the last 20 years. So I have a very practical day-to-day operation Uh, interaction with those professionals. I think the VA hospital in Decatur is suffering dramatically from many ways that other hospitals are suffering. They have shortages of medicine, which we're seeing examined in Mass Mutual, one of the best hospitals. They have a workforce shortage that affects every single hospital in Georgia. It's particularly acute when there's so much competition, available jobs, for healthcare providers uh, in the Atlanta area. They cannot hire enough people, train enough people, and keep them. I know that our state uh, community service board psychiatrist, as soon as they've served a year in the state system, are hired away from the VA with a $20,000 signing bonus. We cannot keep a workforce in many of our hospitals, but particularly it's a critical shortage critical management shortage at the VA hospital, and it's a tragic one-after-one, case-after-case that I see regularly of people not being served. Well, so, you, so you're, you're, what you're saying is that, 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 that veterans are now competing with the baby boom generation. Exactly. So, well, uh, Kyle and Eric, uh, it's, we, we, in addition to what Mary Margaret sees when she works with people one-on-one over there, uh, Jim Galloway referred a minute ago to the uh, fact that they suspended all elective surgeries. They did in mid-September. They, it, it turned out we, they were discovered to not doing the proper sterilization of medical equipment needed for surgery. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, that suspension does remain in place while they try to figure out a solution to this problem. Then, also, uh, around that same period of time, a veteran who was in one of their community care homes uh, died. He had been discovered to have been bitten by ants more than 100 times while he lay in his bed in this community care facility, veterans-run community uh, care facility. Johnny Isaacson's response was, I'm shocked, horrified, and downright maddened by the news that a veteran under the care of the VA was treated so poorly and without any regard for his well-being. Um, so, Kyle and then Eric, I, this is, you know, we, we can talk about how much we honor our veterans, but the, ve- the, vet- the VA problems continue, don't they, Kyle? They do, and I'm certainly not an expert on this, but from reading the reporting, it feels like there's some kind of crisis of accountability for people who who should just be ensuring that these conditions for patients are better than they're frequently uncovered to be. And it's reminiscent of the scandal in 2014 with the VA and wait times where where the VA uh, covered up reports showing that wait times were worse than they were basically advertising to the federal government so they could meet the incentives, the compensation bonuses that would, they would get for keeping wait times under uh, the desired amount that they wanted. The AJC describes complaints that were buried, whistleblowers being retaliated against, and accountability for wrongdoing being rare in these facilities. And I think you just have to get the political system and the regulatory system to take a step back and say, how do we get this back on the right track in terms of making sure we have accountability and protecting the patients in the VA's care? So, so Eric, uh, we we know that Johnny Isaacson, of course, is the chairman and has been for five years of the Senate uh, Veterans Committee. And he has done, he has taken steps to try to resolve some of these problems, but he's dealing with, I think I'm right, in saying, and maybe there's somebody who can correct me, that the Veterans Administration and everything it oversees is like the biggest bureaucracy in federal government right now. Yeah, I mean, this is outrageous. And this is not something that just happened. This has been going on for decades. I remember in the 90s when I was working in the Senate office, uh, there were problems with the VA in indicator. 
And, you know, God bless Johnny Isaacson for for trying to do something. And again, this is another example of why we're all going to miss Johnny Isaacson not being there. But others need to step forward and do something as well. And I think the public needs to speak out and demand it. I mean, this is a perfect example of where the government uh, plays a role. And here we are on Veterans Day, uh, you know, honoring our veterans. And here's a great example of where the government is letting these people down. Um, we should point out, Jim, that in fact, as a result of what happened in September, uh, there was a change in administrators at the VA hospital here. Uh, the previous administrator, uh, administrative head uh, resigned under duress, and they've put new people in place. So at least there's, there's that going forward. Right, right. But, but, but to Eric's point, I mean, this is, this is the, the gap between what, what we say on Veterans Day on, on the 11th day of the 11th month and what we do the other 364 years is just so wide. Uh, that you can't if I'm, I'm not a veteran uh, but if I were I would be uh, rather uh, skeptical of any anything that I hear today right there have been personnel changes for years you know something comes up we change the personnel this is just outrageous and I can't believe that every you know year we're reading over and over again and nothing gets done one of the smart things Johnny Isaacson says is that care for the veterans is a work in progress. We're always learning. We're always moving forward. We learned about Agent Orange. We're now learning about other uh, cancer-related chemical diseases. It's a constant work in progress. But stopping all surgery is such a dramatic fact that that really should cause us to stop and look. The ant issue in a community, I don't know whether they were talking about their nursing home that's on the the, the campus there or some other nursing homes they have. Uh, a number of my experiences with veterans has to do with VA social workers placing mentally ill veterans, more mentally ill than physically ill. And I had the horrible experience of a, of a veteran ward of mine being murdered by his caregiver in a placement that the VA placed him in. I was a, I was a witness in the murder trial uh, and, and the caregiver was convicted. So those horrible cases, stopping surges, individual murders, it, it just cannot be tolerated. So did the, did the, did the um, suspect who was eventually convicted, did yeah. it turn out that there was not the proper background check run on this person? Was it a completely unexpected act that no one could have anticipated? She had been a, an approved uh, VA caregiver for a while. It was an older lady who had very few people in her home. It was a small private placement. When I mean private, I mean it was an institution. It was a home-based placement. There had been a mixture of support for her and criticism of her, but she locked him out on a day that it was six degrees outside and he froze to death. Mm. Those are the kind of facts that VA has to own up to, has to be accountable for. Kyle, uh, Johnny Isaacson has been responsible in a couple of uh, instances for uh, introducing and passing by bipartisan support uh, a, a couple of measures that are part of a reform that he has tried to put in place. But the reforms are also raising new concerns. So as one example, Isaacson introduced and passed legislation that to deal with the back, backlog of hundreds of thousands of cases across the country, uh, VA would now outsource some of its medical treatment to private facilities and pay for veterans to be able to go to facilities that were authorized. That, that, that seems like a really reasonable solution. Unfortunately, now there are people who think what that does is pave the way for the VA to be completely privatized, which people are concerned will create a whole new raft of problems. Well, healthcare in general is just really complicated. I mean, the private system is not immune to all of the problems that we're seeing in the VA or immune to problems that are different but are like similar in scale and have similar impacts on patients. Um, I don't know if we were reading about the same reform, but I saw that the VA Mission Act is there's some trouble with the implementation of that because when they're trying to set up the network of providers that veterans will be able to access outside of the VA care system, that the company that bid on the contract to do that has not delivered with a wide enough network to be sure that all of the veterans will be able to be served in this 
system outside the VA system of care, and that there are lawmakers on Capitol Hill who are frustrated that when this bid was made, that not all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. So I think, you know, what this really needs is sustained attention from lawmakers. That's why it's actually really frustrating to lose Senator Isaacson as he comes to the end of his career, because he was so good at making this a focus. And my only hope is that lawmakers will follow in his footsteps and want to do an even better job than he did for our veterans. Yeah, Jim, uh, I think Kyle says something that matters here. Isaacson has been a great advocate. He's done uh, what he can, I think. And, and it is fascinating that in a world of partisanship that we've never seen the likes of before, Isaacson, because it's about veterans, and, and to some extent because of the way he conducts himself in, on the Hill, has been able to raise bipartisan support for the work he's tried to do. Yeah, and and, and, and with that, and, and there, there, uh, he's done that with a, a certain degree of humility. Uh, I don't know if you all recall... Uh, it's it's been several months now, but when when Trump was continually uh, attacking uh, the late John McCain, af- well after he died, you know uh, Isaacson got up there, uh, got up on the Senate floor in defense of of McCain, but he also did something else. Uh, Isaacson uh, uh, did not go to Vietnam. Uh, he came of age during Vietnam, but I, I believe he did. He he was in the Coast Guard. If no, I, he was in the National Guard. He was in the National with Guard with George Bush and right. others. And and basically on the U.S. Senate floor, he apologized for 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 uh, dodging dodging service in Vietnam when so many people like like John McCain, like Max Cleland, uh, uh, did not and suffered as a result. All right, let's do this. Um, it, to close out this segment again, we, we honor veterans today, uh, our active service and those who've served for a very long time. Do you have a last comment you well, want to make? Well, I just wanted to say that with, with uh, Senator Isaacson retiring, uh, I don't believe, and Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe there's any other member of the Georgia delegation on House or Senate Veterans Affairs. And, right. That's and we right. have yeah. such a large presence in this state of veterans that it's an opportunity for one of the members of the Georgia delegation to really step up and play a leadership It'll role. It'll be interesting in to see if that happens. So, um, again, we honor veterans today and uh, also uh, we'll continue to try to watch how they are dealt with as they make their way through the uh, health care system that is not treating with the res- them with the respect they deserve. Let's do this. Let's get our first break out of the way and come back and uh, talk about the politics of today. This is Political Rewind. That car of yours you no longer need. Give it a second life by donating it. It could be worth hundreds of dollars to support this station. Pickup is free. Here's how to get started. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, we talk about the late comedian Gary Shandling with his friend Judd Apatow, who's edited a new book about the comic. The book includes photos, scripts, stand-up material, and journal pages that reveal the insecurities and emotional suffering that Shandling turned into comedy. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB, gpbnews.org, or listen live on the GPB apps. They're available in your favorite app store. We're back on Political Rewind. Kyle Hayes of Peach Pod is joining us from NPR in Washington. Mary Margaret Oliver, Eric Tannenblatt, Jim Galloway here in our Midtown Atlanta studios. You know what, Kyle? Kyle, when we were talking about family of veterans, I didn't get your uh, family story. Well, we don't actually have a lot of veterans in my family. Um, I have you know friends and peers of mine uh, from school that that ended up serving. But that actually is why that 1% number is so striking to me because um, it's just not as much of a part of the my family or the the people that I've been around be, as it is. And you're for, because yeah. Kyle is much, much younger than all of the rest of us. He's a millennial. And the veterans and the General Assembly, the numbers, uh, we have uh, Scott Holcomb, of course, yeah. who has a very distinguished military career, but Bill Kitchens, who was a Vietnam veteran, is kind of the generation going on. Let's say one good thing, what we're doing for veterans. The AJC story this weekend about Emory's recruitment of individuals living the service, and I'm familiar with uh, Emory Law School calling uh, 
young man completing his military service, calling him at a youth hostel in uh, Europe where he was traveling and saying, let's fill out your application right now and offer you a full package. Wow. And he ended up coming to Emory. Yeah, that's really that's there really are a few good things, but the health care, the point that Cal makes about the systemic problems at the VA hospital down the road from where I live are replicated in many different yeah. health care okay. systems across the country. All right. Um, let's talk politics, uh, uh, real politics now. Jim Galloway, your column yesterday uh, was fascinating. You, uh, you, you talk about the fact that there was a message delivered in the Kentucky governor's race um, where it, we apparently have a Democratic winner, Governor-elect Bashir's probably. Matt Bevin apparently is losing the office. And, and we know that one of the big issues in that race had to do with the fact that Bevin tried to unwind the Medicaid expansion that Bashir's father had put in place when he was governor of Kentucky. We knew that was a big issue in that race. And you tell us that, coincidentally, this was at the same time, essentially, that Brian Kemp was rolling out his Medicaid waivers. Why do you connect those two? Well, for two things. Number one, uh, Democrats are discovering the power of preserving Obamacare. I mean, and 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 you can see you can see nationwide that they're backing away from from a Medicare for all. That's that's kind of lost its luster, despite the fact that you have two very prominent presidential exactly. yes. candidates yeah, promoting yes, it. Yes, yes, but you have many people on on the inside. And, and look, you've had you've had Nancy Pelosi and you've had Hillary Clinton just in recent days saying that this is the, the Democrats need to change direction on this. So you've got this this and and I talked to uh, Bob Trammell, who's the House Minority Leader in in, in the state capitol. Mm-hmm. You know, he is. He, he says he, his people will be putting uh, uh, the preservation of Obamacare front and center. Now, okay. So now you had last week. You had Brian Kemp rolling out his response, his his Republican answer to the health care issue, and and it, he is he's he's seeking two waivers, but basically what his his proposal is 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 the emphasis of his pr- proposal is is to help people who already have health insurance keep that health insurance uh, by, uh, through a reinsurance program that would lower premiums and it's directed and it look it, it, it's, it's it's very much needed it's 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 out in the uh, uh, in, in the in the rural areas of Georgia where in in the hundred counties where there's only one health insurer uh, and so it, you but does he expand Medicaid yes uh, by fifty thousand, it's it's a fractional, a fraction of the four hundred eight. And if if you look at the dollar figures of their estimates, you've got thirty six million for 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 Medicaid uh, Medicaid expand role expansion. Okay, one hundred and six million for this uh, reinsurance program. So you, the the dollar figures tell you where the emphasis is. I remember clearly when, before the exchange was open, that Kentucky was the leading example across the country under the then-Democratic governor to make Kentucky ready for this, to choose to participate. And Kentucky's success has been ahead of most other states because of the excellent management they had. I think Kentucky was proud of that. And obviously they have the same health care issues and challenges that we all are facing across not only the South but nationally. The significance of this political issue seems to me to grow every day. You can use the veterans hospital caregiving, non-caregiving as one example. You can use Mass General not being having medicine. Uh, you can go forward in many different ways to ex- to ex- further emphasize that healthcare is a primary front burner issue for Georgians in the upcoming election and nationally. And Governor Kemp's proposals are very, very weak in terms of solving real issues. So, uh, Kyle, let me restate uh, Jim's position on this and then give you, because this is an area, your area of expertise. So Galloway says in his column, essentially, the Democrats and Republicans are each going to die on their own separate hills. Democrats, like uh, Governor like Bashir's, saying we will expand Medicaid again, we will not allow it to be rolled back, and, and he won votes in part because of that, we imagine. And Brian Kemp, on the other hand, uh, saying here in Georgia, um, no, I stand by this notion that we have to have only a limited expansion because in the long run, if we get stuck paying the bills, we won't be able to afford it. Is his ca- does he make the uh, case pretty well for you, Kyle? 
No, I think the, well, first I should say by way of disclosure is that I'm a research associate at a think tank that does work on this. Yeah. I don't make media appearances on behalf of my employer. So these opinions are just my own here. I think the thing that stands out to me is when you look at the numbers, the state is going to pay millions of dollars more to cover hundreds of thousands fewer people than if they would have just accepted the Medicaid expansion. And so when I look at how this might play out if these waivers go into effect and in in terms of who's going to die on what hill here, Republicans are relying significantly on a rural base of support to maintain their control of the state, to maintain their control of the state house and state senate. And the Georgia Hospital Association seemed really underwhelmed by this plan. And one of the problems that this plan seeks to address is healthcare in rural areas. But if you don't drive down the uninsured rate, then you're not going to see the improvements in rural hospital finances that are needed. And it seems to me that it might be tough for Governor Kemp to come around in 2022 and make the case that they you know, they might, as Jim suggests, put the bumper sticker on that says they got the state out of Obamacare. But if they haven't made the health care system better, that might still be a challenge on Republicans to run on. Eric? Well, first of all, uh, Governor Bevins, Kentucky is a different situation. In the, in the case of Kentucky, they had Medicaid expans- expansion that Governor Bevins took away. Mm-hmm. And anytime you have something— to take away. Right. right. But and you, yeah, you take it away. We did not do medi- Medicaid expansion here in Georgia. And so Governor Kemp is proactively, look, it was his first year in office. And one of the first things he did was put forth, uh, you, you know, legislation to allow him to submit these waivers. So he recognizes that it is a priority. The other point is every state is different. The population's different, even though, you know, demo, you know, geographically, you know, Kentucky's not that far from Georgia. We are a very different state, just like Texas is different from New York. And so, you know, the governor has to look at the state, the state demographics. Uh, you know, one of the things with Medicaid expansion is, uh, you know, you don't want to throw good money at bad. We, we, have a, we have an issue. It was We just talked about it when we were talking about uh, the VA. Uh, we, we have an issue with personnel. We don't have the doctors and the healthcare professionals that we need in certain parts of the state. So just throwing money out there doesn't necessarily mean you're going to solve the healthcare problem. Uh, that doesn't mean you ignore it. So I think we have to give Governor Kemp a chance. He's making this a priority. He's doing what he thinks after doing research will work for Georgia. Is it going to be perfect? Probably not. And you can tweak it. But he's not taking something away like what happened in Kentucky. What he's doing is the continuation of the slow walk. We know that before the election of Trump, that the Georgia Hospital Association, which is a big foot and should be exercising their political power with the Georgia Chamber of (coughs) Commerce, as we know another big foot, had put together several proposals for consideration of Medicaid expansion. When Trump got elected, all that stopped. Uh, Kemp campaigns on bad, bad, bad Medicaid expansion, and now we have another slow walk. Here's my biggest fear. My biggest fear that the smallness, the smallness of this effort is only for the purpose of delaying until we see who's president next. So the slow walk of this is not, how long is it going to take to get approved federally? Uh, The work requirement is still in litigation. We have a pretty complicated insurance support hundreds of million, $136 million going to insurance support. Is that uh, feasible in terms of before the 2020 election? I'm fearing another slow walk and a lack of leadership. But what happens if you did full Medicaid expansion and the federal government walks away from the table, leaving the state with the, with the responsibility of picking up the entire cost? I think that there's a lot of Questions. So let me let me throw that if I can. Yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but but Kyle, let me because again, and I know you're speaking for yourself, and I hope that's okay that I, I ask you to weigh in on it uh, from that perspective, your own opinion. What what do the states who have taken full expansion of Medicaid say about the concerns that Republicans in so many places say? What if the feds can't pay for it anymore? How how has that been answered? How do they deal with that? Well, there's a few things to know about that. The first thing to know, <clears throat> excuse me, the first thing to know is that the 
federal matching rate for Medicaid hasn't been attempted to be reduced since the 1980s, since the Reagan administration. The other example here, excuse me, the other example here is Republican efforts to repeal the ACA in Washington. And so it is Republican members of Congress who would like to take away the Medicaid expansion. And I think that that is sort of in some way what is referred to, but they obviously failed to do that and then lost the House of Representatives largely based on their health care agenda. The other thing that's interesting about this, though, is while Republicans will say, no, we don't want to take the Medicaid money because we're worried the federal government won't ultimately fulfill that promise, the other waiver, it's called a 1332 waiver, but it's a waiver to the ACA, actually asks for all of the ACA premium tax credit money to be brought down into Georgia and then let Georgia distribute that. It's like $6.2 billion, I think, Kyle, something like that. Right. And, and what is not raised is, so what if the federal government doesn't deliver on the ACA money? But right. it's unlikely that any of that money is actually going to be withheld unless there is a major legislative effort in Congress to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Let, let me bring this back uh, because we're going to have plenty of time. The waivers won't even be submitted till close to the end of the year. I don't know how long the feds would normally take to process this sort of thing. But so, Jim, just we'll have plenty of time to continue talking about it in depth. But bring it back to the political. So, um, you know, you, you, here we have a race in Kentucky where a Democrat wins. Medicaid seems to be a big part of why he won. Are you suggesting that uh, even though Kemp isn't up for re-election until 2022, what he does now about Medicaid, what the feds say about the waiver that he asked for, for that'll give us uh, 50,000 people, new people coverage, could play well play into his reelection in 2022. No, I think I think I think it'll have mu- a much more immediate impact. I think it'll play very very d- deeply into the 2020 race. Well, now, okay, now you have, sure. You had uh, you have basically you've got you've got the tr- the Kemp administration asking the Trump administration for the waivers. So so kind of the 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 debate is really between those two parties and whether whether the Trump administration eventually says okay. You know they have been encouraging uh, people to to submit these waivers to see where where they can go with them, uh, but. Uh, so, so that what that means is, other than some line items in in the budget next year, that's that's the that's the only place where the debate is going to occur within the state capitol. But you've got you've got a a huge Democratic push to pick up sixteen House seats uh, in Georgia, and if they can do that, they can take control of the chamber, get a get a seat at the table for redistricting, and in that argument, in that push, health care is going to be a a, a primary focus. It is political malpractice to have forfeited between 9 and $10 billion of money that's already been appropriated off to, so, off to New Jersey and California. So that will certainly be, if you were running Lucy McBath's campaign up in the 6th District, where you know she won in part because she emphasized um, uh, continuing pre-existing conditions coverage, Eric, that'll be an argument Democrats like a Mary Margaret Oliver can use in that race. Um, can uh, whoever the Republican opponent is counter with the argument you make that, wait a minute, voters, be careful. If we expand Medicaid, we're going to end up eating them. Someday this state may very well be responsible for it. Which of those arguments do you think well, is going to play Well, there are a lot better? of issues in that 6th District race in the last well, election sure, cycle. of course. And there are a lot of people in the 6th District that are very cautious about Medicaid expansion were very uh, pessimistic about Obamacare. And those views, I think, still hold true today. But which one do you think is a more persuasive argument for voters in the 2020 cycle? I, I think I think fiscal responsibility in the 6th District. I think those are educated voters. Uh, I think those voters understand that, you know, the federal government can't just keep printing money, mm-hmm. that, you know, we need to... Uh, be fiscally responsible. And I think what Governor Kemp is proposing to do, where Mary Margaret um, believes it's incremental, I think it's showing some good uh, fiscal stewardship. And if the waivers are granted, uh, we'll then have time to see if they if they work. It's- the fact that the 6th District voter is more educated and is probably paying attention and already probably has insurance, that voter already knows, however, that the health care system across their state with the highest child poverty rate of any state 
in the top 10 most populated is a problem. Well, Kyle, one of the things, though, that um, you, you hear if you talk to the governor's office about the, uh, the waiver and the limited expansion is an argument that's pretty interesting. It's basically the argument Eric Tannenblatt's making, which is, hey, Republicans are being, criti- are being criticized and have been for years for not coming up with a solution to the health care problems in this country. They wanted to overturn Obamacare, except for one thumbs down vote, they would have done it. But they don't have a plan of their own. And the governor's office argues, Kyle, see, now we have an idea. We are starting a plan. Well, and I think it's still fair to criticize them for what the outcomes of that plan will be if the outcomes are going to fall short of what you can get through the ACA with while spending less state money. Okay. Um, but I also think, though, that um, Jim mentioned that some of this debate will take place in the Capitol over line items in the budget. And I actually think that might be a pretty significant issue because I was at least struck by the fact that the waivers as proposed look a lot different than what was discussed during the legislative session. For instance, the governor or his floor leaders never uh, got out and explicitly argued for leaving the healthcare.gov ACA platform that people shop for health insurance on. And there was some reluctance from Terry England, the House budget chair, Um, on committing at least immediately to the new spending that would be required by these waivers, because broadly, as a state, we're having a discussion about spending cuts and a 50-50 chance of a recession next year. All right. Um, We're going to watch this fight unfold in the months ahead. Uh, Let's do this. Let's get another break out of the way. When we come back, uh, I want to hear what you all think about what President Trump accomplished on his visit to Atlanta on Friday And talk a little bit about some of the things that Speaker David Ralston said on our show last week. You're listening to Political Rewind. I'm Christy Kent, the Director of Communications for the Georgia's Rome Office of Tourism. Our mission is to strengthen the economic prosperity of the community through tourism development. We underwrite with GPB because they create strong connections with our listeners through storytelling that is full of rich and meaningful content. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. Voters in North Carolina are balancing faith and politics when thinking about the 2020 presidential election. I really prayed about encroaching our faith. I don't believe in abortion or that stuff. But if you got someone who is going to destroy the country, why we still have me in there? I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Evangelical Christians talk about the president, his policies, and his personality this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. If you weren't with us at the very top of the show, one more reminder, we're going to do a special edition of the show on Thursday. So we're here Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We just think there's too much going on to not uh, do a show on Thursday, and we're grateful to the uh, team over at On Second Thought for uh, moving aside at 2 o'clock Thursday afternoon to allow us to bring you a live political rewind. Uh, Kyle Hayes, uh, you were in Washington on Friday, I assume, which means you didn't sit in traffic for two hours. It was snowmageddon all over here with the <laughs> president's motorcade, the vice president's motorcade. Consider yourself lucky, Kyle. <laughs> Jim Galloway, aside from the fact that it was one of the greatest traffic jams of all times and that whether the president is a Republican or Democrat at any given time, they ought to think carefully about winning a metro area if they're going to tie up traffic. It does. Like it does. Look, look, and it, it, it is, it is, it, this is this is nonpartisan. Uh, Jimmy Carter still owes me $75 because he had my car towed. When he was coming into town one, uh, uh, one, one year. Uh, but, what did he accomplish on this visit, do you think? Okay. He, the, 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 the number one, fundraising, obviously. Yeah. I mean, he raised a, a boatload of money for the RNC. $3.5 million? In the, and that will be shared with uh, the, the Purdue campaign, the David Purdue campaign. And he held a, a, uh, an event with, you know, maybe 400 or so African Americans from Georgia and from a lot of other places. The cool producer on that shoot. Uh, told me, the news producer, that he thought the count was more like 350. And on one report, it said the room was full. Uh, the pool producer mm-hmm. said it wasn't really very full. I don't really know which is which. Well, well here's, here's, here's the thing. News. Okay. All right. Well, but first of all, uh, Donald Trump is is Donald Trump is not going to get a heavy percentage of the African-American vote. Yeah. It's not going to happen, yeah. just based on Charlottesville and all, all the past events. 
I think what you have to, in cases like this, you have to look at the triangulation. Uh, right now, Donald Trump's biggest survival problem is among uh, college-educated women, uh, white women who are uncomfortable with his social stance. And I and and one of those look if 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 you want to make a a a a college-educated white woman uncomfortable, then be wrong on on racial issues. And I think the friendlier face Donald Trump shows to African Americans, the better he does among uh, what used to be the Republican women. That's an interesting point of view. It's not so much about attracting African Americans as making uh, independents more comfortable. Try to have a day where you're not insulting them is the point that mm -hmm. Mr. Galloway appropriately made. All presidential events now are by invitation. This is not a rally. This is an invited event to meet with the President of the United States. That's an attractive invitation for what is from older African-American voters, the party of Lincoln. There's, there's some of them left. Uh, any kind of entrepreneur that's trying to uh, show uh, support for business friendly, you can find 300 people who will be invited to go see the president who will go of any color stripe well, ideation. You're not suggesting that it isn't quite possible that everyone – it is quite possible, don't you think, Mary Margaret, that every one of the people who are in that rally, African-American there, might very well like Donald Trump. You're not – it is possible, isn't it? It is possible but for exactly <laughs> the reasons I said. The party of Lincoln is, is identified in many – Historically, uh, is me growing up with African-American voters in a certain way. Uh, the young entrepreneurs that want to be associated with prosperity, the, that element of the Christian faith that talks about prosperity is attractive. So there's, there's some slivers of participation, but it was an invited event. It was an invitation Eric, event. Eric? The actual event was, but that wasn't, that was more symbolic. He was talking to a bigger audience. He was talking yeah. to whoever the pool was sending the feeds out to, and he was showing up. And part of the problem over the years that Republicans have had uh, with the African-American community is they didn't show up. And he actually has a pretty good story to tell from an economic standpoint when you look at the unemployment rate of African-Americans and a commitment to entrepreneurship, as, as Mary Margaret has stated. And so I think that he was applying – he was appealing to a broader audience and, and showing up. Well, OK, Re regardless of whether it was a staged event with invited people or not, was it – did the, did the president, as Galloway uh, suggests, maybe make – at least have the potential for inroads among some of those independents who've been uncomfortable with his apparent uh, uh, insensitivity on racial issues. Look, I think the more he does, the, the better off he is. And was the event a success? I was not at either event on Friday because I was yeah, moving. Yeah. Um, however, uh, from what I've been told from people that were at both events, they were uh, very successful. The, he was very well received at both events. And I think he left right. Atlanta feeling so, good. Kyle, two bottom lines on this. Number one, Mary Margaret and Jim Galloway, probably pretty correct. The president is not about to suddenly uh, get a surge of huge African-American support. I think many Republicans would agree with that, too. But here's the thing. You know, Galloway pointed out first the big story here. Three and a half million dollars on an flew into town, had one fundraiser, raised three and a half million bucks. That is formidable, Kyle. Well, and I think that what that raises is the possibility that Trump's presidential campaign could have a lot of resources to push messages in every direction that they want to. And the other thing that I find interesting about having this gathering, uh, speaking to African-American supporters of Donald Trump in Atlanta, is that the audience for that may not have actually been African-Americans in Atlanta or in Georgia, but maybe those living in urban centers across the Rust Belt. You know, Hillary Clinton's campaign um, saw just slightly decreased turnout in urban areas of the Rust Belt and ended up losing states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin by really narrow margins. And if the Trump campaign strategy is to say, hey, we might have to get a narrow electoral college win again, and we need these narrow margins in states, if they can even put out a reason for African-American voters to consider President Trump, they may drive down some of that engagement just a little right. bit. And that's the game I think they're playing. Um, thank you. I didn't mean to interrupt you. All right. So that was that was the Republican day, uh, November 8th. But Galloway, now the Democrats get their turn here on November 20th. Of course, we get the presidential debate here. It's also the same day that Barack Obama, uh, the former president, comes to town to do a big conference. So 
We're going to be talking header. a lot about Democrats yeah, yeah, in, in, in the uh, days ahead. Let's turn to one last issue we just have a couple minutes for. Uh, David Ralston was on this show last week, the speaker, and um, he made a little news on several fronts. But let's talk about uh, one of the things he said. Uh, he made it clear that it, he could be open to the possibility that the House might look at giving Georgia voters the chance to vote on a referendum to legalize one form of gambling or another, whether it's casinos, horse racing. That's a huge change. That's a huge change, and and I think maybe Mary Margaret knows more than anybody else at this table about, or or more than anybody can say at this moment. I never know more than Jim Galloway. No, I never know that. But I do know that the conversation around me is different so much that I'm going to have to learn what sports betting is. Uh, Tennessee has passed a sports betting bill. That's on the speaker's mind who lives in Fannin County across the line to Copper Hill where you can go in some way. And I will learn this, how you bet on sports. Uh, I don't think horse racing is the energy right now. I think the casinos have been building, building, building. And now the United States Supreme Court allows us to do the sports betting thing, yeah. whatever it is. So yeah. the conversation is strong. Uh, the leadership around his three-person uh, gambling economic development uh, committee is strong. Uh, I'm hearing a lot of talk, which makes me think it's a real option. Eric, I, we're really running out of time, but you you know a lot about the lobbyists that run around that building. Uh, the the big casino lobbyists have sort of taken a back seat. They were here in such force a couple sessions ago, and now they've sort of backed away. But it's not because they don't believe there's a chance to pass gambling here, right? It's that they recognize that right now the lower their profile, the better. Yeah, they're still they're still out there they're still and mobilizing, yeah, but... and they've just joined forces with the. Uh, paramutual betting and the sports betting, and it's all sort of lumped together. So I misunderstand that, Mary Margaret. You're saying, no, no, there's still a huge oh, presence. Oh, they're there. They're there. All right. Yeah. Look, we are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, I'm uh, sorry we can't talk about this more, but we're going to have time to talk about that and all the other issues that will be uh, on the radar once the legislature meets on that, what, second Monday I think you start on January 13th. The 13th, going to be soon. Monday, January 13th. Uh, Kyle Hayes, thank you so much for joining us from NPR in Washington. Eric Tannenblatt, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Mary Margaret Oliver, thank you. And Jim Galloway, I'll see you again on Friday, which is going to be another big day for Political Rewind. Um, one other quick note. The United States Supreme Court tomorrow takes up the Dreamers uh, act. President Trump, of course, has said that he wants to discontinue it. There's a lawsuit over whether or not he it can that, that can happen. And we're going to talk about it on Political Rewind with Chuck Cook, one of the leading immigration attorneys in the country, among our other panelists. So I'll see you again tomorrow at two.